Good morning, Auckland. And um, should I say it, a big Kiora Fanao. Did I get did I get it right this time? <laughs> but but anyway, you know, I'm, I'll keep on practicing. So I think I think I reckon that's a little bit better than um, the one in Sydney. So that's that's good. <laughs> um, a big thank you to all the the Cap family. Um, they have been really amazing. It it took us months to prepare this service. Uh, a big shout out to Jono, who has been who has been absolutely amazing leading this worship team and he's been there just kind of like we need to go have service and we need to like practice for our songs and he, that guy is amazing and he's, he's, he's all fired up for this church and a big welcome to the Charlize, Darren and Marianne um, yeah from Brisbane yeah where, where's Darren and Marianne there you go welcome guys um, yeah Hopefully, um, the Auckland weather wasn't too bad for you. You know, it's how you know how you know how Auckland is if you've been here before. And the teens have done an amazing quiz night last night. I've heard there, and a big shout out to those people who have helped. They've they've done a marvelous job. So um, yeah, so so to, today um, this, this is a cap service. But having said that, business must go on. So if for all the for all the visitors around here, so we're studying on the. The book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is, is a very important part of, of the Bible because it shows what happens right after the gospel, what happens after Jesus Christ died. And it shows how the early Christians kind of responded to it, how, how this big news of, of Jesus dying on the cross, how, how did they react? So now we're going to focus on Acts chapter 24. Um, it, it's a split lesson, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing the first part. The second part would be Gillen. His, um, his, last, his last swan song here in Auckland. So let's, let's give him a good um, clap after that. because Let's encourage him. And, and after that, there's, um, there's a little bit of you know, um, a party with, with the Smiths. So um, having said that, let's, let's go on to Acts 24. Verse one to sixteen. But before that, let's let's bow our heads down and let's pray and and and, and say thanks. So Father God, we thank you so much for this wonderful time, Lord, just to be able to serve you and be able to worship you, Lord, and and just to see this amazing group of young people um, devoting their lives to you. It just encourages the whole church and encourages me as well, Lord. And and we pray, Lord, that as as we do this, Lord, we 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 give you glory and we give you honor, Lord, because everything is all about you. It's not about us. It's, it's all about you, Lord. May, may the words of, of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's, let's go to Acts 24, verse 1 to 16. Now, if you look at it, this seems like a courtroom procedural. So all the time, I love courtroom procedurals. Every time I watch a TV show about cases, I like the Aaron Brockovich or, or shows like, you know, a, a few good men, a few things that really stuck out to me. Is I love the word when they say objection, your honor, or like sustained or overruled, you know, it's, it's, and, and what I really love about that part is, you know, when the defendant stands on trial and the defendant was like, like, no, this isn't true. I love that part because it just, it just shows what they stand for and what's their convictions. Now, if you look at this chapter, 
it appears that this is like an old school procedural. So just a little bit of background. Um, the book of Acts was all about how the early Christians was kind of like, oh, how do we respond to God dying on the cross for us? And then in the later part of the chapter, it hones to this specific guy called Paul. And this guy was like all fired up, spreading, spreading the word. And if, if, if for us Christians, spreading the word kind of like gives you a little bit of, you know, persecution here and there. And what happens with, with Paul was he was put on trial. And then after that, this seems like an old school procedural. Now, if you dig into this chapter as I start reading, you would find a couple of similarities. So let's start with Acts 24, verse 1, all the way down to 16, and Gillen will continue the rest of the chapter. So let's start with, with Acts chapter 1. It says here, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. It, it sounds like turtle, but it, I, I don't know how, how to pronounce it. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. And Tertullus said, we have enjoyed this um, long period of peace under you. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way. Most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with some profound gratitude. It seems like tur this Tertullus was kind of like greasing um, this governor up, you know. Um, but in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. And Tertullus was accusing Paul. This is his accusations. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader. It sounds like he's like a, a gangster of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to know the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. And the other Jews joined in the accusation asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, now it's Paul's turn to reply. And I find this, the, the Paul's response was very refreshing. It's, it's simply a matter of fact. Paul said, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over the nation. Which is true. So I gladly make my defense. How he responded was like really to the point. He said, you can easily verify that... No more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you in the charges that they are now making against me. So Paul was basically saying, look, this is, this is your word, this is my word. What are you going to do about it? But, however... This is something that Paul admitted. It says here, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So the point that I'm trying to make today is these two things. Stand firm 
and stand out. So Paul, in the later half of his ministry, faced a tons, tons of um, opposition. Paul was accused with a lot of things. He was accused of being a troublemaker. He was accused of stirring up riots all over the world. He tried to desecrate the temples. And this was a reference to Acts 21, verse 22, uh, 28, in which the, the Jews thought that he was hanging around with this guy called Trophimus, a Gentile. And they assumed that he brought them to the temple. And that for them is a desecration. Jews cannot go to the temple. That's just the tradition. He was, he was accused of stirring up the crowd. And under Roman rule... That was a capital offense. And when Paul was surrounded by all these troubles, we can see inside the verse that he faced it unwaveringly. In verse 16, he said he faced it with a clear conscience. So if you look at Paul's defense, Paul was very cunning. One by one, he had some defense with, with, with the accusations that they have. When they accused him of a troublemaker, Paul offered an example of his character, as you can see in verse 17 later on when Gillen was talking about it. And you could see in a couple of letters that while he was addressing to the, to the Roman church, that he was asking for some gifts to give to the poor. He was accused of being ceremonially unclean, and he desecrated the, the temple. The way Paul was defending that was he said that, well, I came to Jerusalem 12 days ago. The whole point of that was 12 days just happened to coincide with a Jewish festival. So Paul went with an intention of worship. Why would he make all of that trouble to go to a Jewish festival knowing that he has a background of being a Pharisee and kind of like stir up trouble. It doesn't make sense, you know. He went there with an intention of worship. In the end, Paul exposed what was on these people's minds. Looking back at a couple of chapters ago, he exposed the true reasons of these people. In chapter 21, we could see how these people really tried to persecute Paul and throw any kinds of accusations at him, just to put him in prison. If you read back on the chapters before this, we could see how the accusations did not stick. That's why he was transferred from place to place, from governor to Sanhedrin and in all of that. But at the end, he exposed what was on these minds. When Paul faced these chapters, that was the main reason for that. In chapter 23, facing Ananias in the face when his character was an issue and his works were his, when his works in ministry was questioned, it wasn't his character that Paul put emphasis on. But for him, it was all about his beliefs. It's amazing how when you're in a trial and you're accused of, of different kinds of things, Paul said, that did not matter. I, I will defend that in a matter of fact. But this is what's important to me. 
Paul put emphasis uh, put put emphasis on this whole concept of resurrection. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I lost my slide. <laughs> Fast forward to the current chapter in 24. That was the previous one. Don't worry about that. When now he's facing Felix, it is still the same issue. Here it is. That's better. It is still the same issue. From chapter 23, Paul was talking about the resurrection. He said, oh, my character, that doesn't matter to me. And then when he was facing Felix again, he said, still doesn't matter to me. It's this whole concept of resurrection. Paul was unwavering with his belief to the point where he felt his character and his life had to take a back burner out of this. On July 22, 1962, there was this ship called the Mariner 1, a spaceship that was destined to go to Venus. This was an $80 million ship back then. I don't know what it costs now. But the story of this was this ship, before it kind of like lifted up, all of a sudden just erupted and crashed down. It took days for them trying to figure out what's, what could be the possible error of this. What was, what was the, the cause of this huge mishap? From theories such as there might be a structural integrity, there might be corruption, or there might be sabotage from the Russians or whatever. Later on, they found out that the main cause of this was a tiny typo. Just one single hyphen. So small that you can't even see it on the projector. (laughs) One tiny hyphen caused an error so vast that it wrecked a whole ship. It's amazing how one code could change the entire trajectory of this huge ship. This tiny typo can make or break the whole purpose of what this machine was built for. When the computer programmers were putting these cardboard slots, because, you know, old school ships, they don't have this Apple MacBooks or whatever. They were using these cardboard slots. Um, They were slowly putting it in those computer consoles, and they just forgot to punch one single hole. That's what they called a a typo or a hyphen. They forgot to punch one hole in that slot. And what happens to that was when the computer read it, the whole order from the firing sequence to the ship's navigation, everything did not make sense anymore. It made the ignition system go haywire, the thrust a little bit off, making the trajectory off as well. The result of this was a total disaster. The mariner, this huge ship that cost $80 back then, just lift up a little bit and then fell off and then boom, end of story. In the same way, this is what Paul was trying to prevent. Paul felt that this resurrection issue had to be addressed for. At that time, there were different Jewish sects that believed different things. There were Pharisees that believed in resurrection angels and all of that. And then there were the Sadducees that did not believe resurrection at all. Paul used his trial to serve as a platform for this important message. 
this message of resurrection. And looking at the general arc of this whole thing, when Paul was being imprisoned all the way up to the end, he always put this emphasis, the resurrection, resurrection. And he did this because the resurrection of Christ plays an important role in the gospel message. Without it, or even changing its meaning, like what happened to Mariner's once code, would totally alter the gospel message altogether. This idea of God being born in a form of a man, then died for our sins, is one of the fundamental doctrines of our Christian life. Christ's resurrection is so important because it means that he fulfills the prophecies from the Old Testament all the way down to the New. This whole idea of him being resurrected is a game changer. It means that when Jesus died and rose up from the dead, it means that he is God. It means that he saved us from our sins. It means that all his teachings about him loving us so much while we were still sinners. All of that means that's true. If Christ's resurrection did not happen, then that would make him just a regular man. Take resurrection away in our Christian faith and that all of what we know, all of what we believe will all crumble down like a house of cards. All throughout Paul's letters to the different churches, Paul was very pragmatic in his dealings with a couple of church issues. Because you know how church is. Some, some people agree, some people disagree with a couple of things. His teachings preaches about how it's okay for us to disagree with gray areas. Some might have strong opinion on a certain matter, while others do not. And all of that is all good, but there are things that are absolutely not disputable. Things that if we waver or change our belief or water it down, it would totally change the gospel message. Looking forward a couple of chapters ahead, as this story escalated from Felix, the governor, all the way down to him under Festus' care in the next couple of chapters, and then culminating all throughout him facing King Agrippa himself, a king, Paul stood firm and stood out, unwavering of his belief. As he was facing King Agrippa, he said this, But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and then to the Gentiles. For us, our modern-day Christians, like Paul, what does the resurrection of Christ mean in our lives? Does it make us stand firm? Upon knowing the truth, Paul realized that the gospel of Jesus and the law did not conflict with one another. 
but instead they support each other. Being a Pharisee, Paul already had knowledge with regards to resurrection. He just needed more teaching of it. Paul used those same convictions he had when he was a Pharisee, those convictions he had when he learned from the law, and latched on to the gospel of Jesus to be more convicted of his faith. And look what happened to him. He did amazing things with it. Paul defended this idea of resurrection because he knew that without it, everything in the gospel would, would crumble. Something to think about in our lives is, are we fundamentally solid on the message that Christ is spreading? Do we really know, as Christians, what this message is all about? Or are we kind of like a little bit swaying or are we, we're, we're, we're persuaded by different kinds of false teachings here and there? One thing that has become sadly a norm nowadays is this new perception of who Jesus is. Often than not, I find that as I share in campus, asking people out about their views and spirituality, you know how it is, like what are your thoughts on Jesus, blah, 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 and all that. Their notion of who Jesus is, there seems to be this general idea about him being just a great man. Just a great man. And oftentimes people view his teachings as just ideologies or philosophies, a way of living. This watered down view of Christianity that Jesus has become more like an influential figure. Rather than God himself, his teachings have become more like how-to manuals or actual words from God. Toning his words down would seem like an injustice. Toning it down, toning him down as just a regular man would just make him on par with people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, or even John Lennon. But he is more than that. He is God. And sadly, as Christians, I'm guilty of this. But we have this culture of tolerance to this. This culture of when we go out and share and we ask people out and say, hey, what's your thoughts on who Jesus is? And they talk about, oh, what a great guy, you know. And I'm so guilty of this and my mindset tends to be like, oh, cool, you know, his belief is close enough. That'll do. Off you go. Or having this view of Jesus as Well, at least he knew who Jesus is, right? That's a start. Then maybe in the next couple of years as he grows to read his Bible, then he would get a better idea about who he is. But for me, that is a strong disservice to God. And that is unfaithful to him. As Christians, let's stand firm in this true gospel message of Christ. Let's be bold and share this true message, not with anger, not with being arrogant or being condescending, but being with love. And because he is God and he gave us his command, then we should preach what the true message is and let's be fearless about it. Because there are so many people who need Jesus and so many people yearn to find, to find out about him. But sadly, most of the time, they've been given the wrong idea of who he is. Just a great guy.
Because if people actually know who the true Jesus is, then that would make them oh, stand out. It's amazing what the gospel of Christ can do. This idea of a resurrected God coming down to save us. And if you don't agree with that, think of this guy called Paul. From being a murderous man on a rampage killing Christians, Paul turned a 180 and devoted his life throughout ministering and evangelizing to people and defending their faith. And he did that because he believed. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah, he, that he suffered, died, and he raised from the dead. And Jesus did this so that for us we can be saved. This message. If we heartfully believe in this message, this would cause us such a huge conviction. And this would make us do greater things. It would cause us to be more patient with other people, regardless if they are Christians or not. It would cause us to be more serving to others. This should steer us to know more about God, to find out more about Him, examining His words. If God was true, and if you actually believe in this whole concept that He was man and that He rose from the dead, then I think that would give you a good reason to find out more about Him. Knowing Christ is God would at least give you this motivation to find out and open your Bible. For those people who are new here, What is your view of who Jesus is? Is he more like a man or is he actually God? And if you disagree that he is God, then find someone here to talk about it rather than just say, oh, I believe he's man. It's all good and off you go. And lastly, knowing that Jesus is God would make us go out and share this amazing news to everyone around us with fearlessness. Because if God is on our sides, then who can possibly be against us? Believing of a resurrected Christ should make us stand out and stand firm. And that was Paul's main mission when he was put on trial. Here's Gillen for the second part of the service. Men, guys, now it's time for announcements. <laughs> You'd like that, not you? <laughs> um, yeah, thanks, Chris, for that. Um, the first part of Acts. Um, I think it is, you know, really convicting. Like, the resurrection should be a, such a fundamental um, area in our life, and we shouldn't um, compromise in any of that aspect. Um, But, I mean, my second point today is I'm going to be talking about hard truths. Um, you know, Chris has pretty much explained the whole context of this chapter. Um, you know, Paul arrives in Jerusalem, and he causes a commotion, right? He's arguing with the crowd and with the Romans, and a lot of people are offended by what he says. They're offended by Paul's actions. Perhaps you could even say that Paul's actions were very appalling. <laughs> That's my only pun. <laughs> But here we see that in the scripture that Paul, he's making his defense against the Sanhedrin, or against, against Felix and the people who are accusing him. But we'll jump right in into verse 17. Um, and we'll be talking about how to handle hard truths. So in Acts 24, verse 17, it says, 
After an absence of several years, this is Paul speaking, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially, ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple, courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So what Paul's saying is, all these accusations, um, they're actually not, they're not, the reason I'm here isn't because of these accusations, it's because I was talking about the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, so the way being the teachings of Jesus and who Jesus is, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his friend, well, with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. Wow. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So we see here, he's, Paul, he's defending his case um, against Felix. And what I, what I find the most interesting part about this passage is um, Paul's second interaction with Felix. You know, in, um, he goes to... Felix or Felix and his wife goes to Paul and says, hey, I want to hear about Jesus. And Paul talks to him about his faith in Jesus Christ. Um, it says here in verse 27 that Felix was someone who was well acquainted with the way. So he would have been very familiar with Jesus' teachings and who Jesus was. Which is interesting because for someone who's supposed to be well acquainted with what Jesus teaches, he had quite a reaction in verse 25, right? It says in verse 25, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Imagine saying that to your disciple, like, okay, don't rebuke you now. I'll do it when it's convenient for me. But Felix, he's the governor of Judea. He's so afraid of what Paul is preaching that he has to turn him away. I think that says a lot about the authority of the scriptures. There are a lot of things that we can learn from Paul's interaction with Felix, which I'll talk about today. So the second point of the sermon is, oh sorry, there's a scripture if I want to read it, is handling hard truths. Oh, that's not it. Um, but it's handling hard truths. You know, it's difficult to handle the hard truth, isn't it? You know, sometimes hearing the truth is just too hard, that it feels better to run from it than to face the truth. And if you've ever read the Bible, you know that there are a lot of hard truths that are very confronting to read. Now, Felix, when he's confronted by Paul, he became so afraid that he told him to go away. And a lot of times when we read scripture, it often reveals truths in our own character that we find hard to confront. And it's tempting at times to be like Felix and shut the truth down when things get uncomfortable. 
I imagine Felix, as he's talking with Paul, getting more and more com- uncomfortable as, you know, Paul's talking more and more about more confronting things. Like, you know, he goes, hey, Felix, let me talk to you about righteousness. Okay, that sounds pretty good. Right, let me talk to you about self-control. All right, uh, that's kind of hard. Okay, let me talk to you about the judgment to come. It's like, whoa, I don't want to hear that. And I think it's human nature for us to run away from things that are hard, to run away from hard truths. But the thing about truth is, the truth still stays the same whether or not we'd like to hear it. Just because we keep ourselves ignorant to the truth doesn't mean the problem goes away. You know, I think running away from the truth is kind of like hiding underneath a blanket. Um, I couldn't find a picture that didn't have a watermark of a guy hiding underneath a blanket, so pretend that the dog is a person. You know, as a child, I've, I mean, as a child who's ever hidden underneath a blanket when they got scared? Yeah? As an adult, anyone? Yeah. Oh, you guys are fearless. But, I mean, for me, I grew up watching a lot of horror movies. And, you know, I'd, there'd be nights where I'd be lying in bed, the lights are off, and then suddenly I hear, like, somewhere in the, in the house. And I would hide under my blankets, hoping that if a psycho with a machete comes along, he wouldn't be able to penetrate through the blankets. You know? But if you think about it, hiding underneath your blankets doesn't actually make a lot of sense. Just because you're under the blankets doesn't change the fact that a man with a machete can still chop you up for dinner. Don't tell that to your kids, by the way. But I think it's human nature for us to deceive ourselves or to run away from the truth rather than facing the things that are scary or uncomfortable. And just like a kid hiding underneath the sheets, we can be like this when it comes to being confronted with things that are in our lives. Just like Felix, we have the tendency to turn away from the hard truths and only deal with it when it's convenient for us. Verse 25 says, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. We can fall into this mindset of facing hard truths or challenges or repenting only when it's convenient for us to do so. You know, when faced with an area of our life that needs challenging, is your response to face it? Or is it to deal with it only when it's convenient for you? Maybe you've been challenged about your unity in the body. Um... You know, you've heard it multiple times from people. Hey, fellowship is important. Hey, where were you last night? Oh, how come you canceled on me? Like five times in a row. Um, and, but the thing is, even if you think that, oh, all I need to do is pray and read, um, I don't really need fellowship. But that doesn't change the truth that the Bible is very clear on the, of the importance of being united in fellowship. Maybe even asked to lead in one form or another, whether it's leading worship, leading a Bible study, a lesson, a prayer, a kid's ministry class. The truth is, we always need people who are willing to step up and lead in the church. It's tempting to think that, oh, I won't be able to write this lesson, or I won't be able to lead this Bible study. But more often than not, the person who asked you to lead that lesson or lead that study wouldn't have asked you in the first place to do so if they thought you couldn't do it. Now we need to face this idea of we have to step out. You know, step out, stand firm. Maybe you've been challenged on your convictions regarding outreach. You know, seeking and saving the lost. It's tempting to only share our faith when it's convenient for us, right? I'll set an hour a week for me to go out and talk to people about God. But then not reach out to people throughout the day. And it's not wrong to set aside time 
to reach out for, to people, right? Um, but if we limit ourselves to only reaching out within that period of time, we miss out on a lot of the people that God puts in place in our lives. The truth is, the truth is God doesn't just provide open people based on your schedule. He's not only going to provide open people uh, within that one hour you have, right? It's like, okay, the hour's up. I'm just going to close everybody. No one's open anymore. But there should be this mentality that every opportunity is an opportunity to reach out. You don't need to have a deep theological argument with everybody you see, but always looking for an opportunity to talk to people about God. You know? Someone asks you, hey, what did you do this weekend? Uh, I went, hung out with my family. I went to the beach and I went to church. Do you go to church? Like easy, easy opener, you know? There's no need to pressure or like repent, but at least there's an opening for you to bring the gospel to somebody else. You know, standing in line at the checkout, you see somebody holding a loaf of bread. I see you like bread. Have you heard about the bread of life? <laughs> Easy opening. But whatever it is, we're always looking out for an opportunity to reach out to people, right? What we need to remember is discipleship isn't supposed to be convenient. If you're looking for God in an attempt, in an attempt to find convenience, I'm sorry, but you won't find it. If you want to repent only when it's convenient, then you won't ever repent. If we put convenience over discipleship, it means that we're trying to have a repentance based on our own terms and not based on God's terms. And the fact is, if we turn away from the truth long enough, eventually we start to believe lies in order to justify our actions. Classic example is in Romans 1. It talks about you know, the spiral of human depravity, basically. And in Romans 1, verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them over... In in this, the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth for God about God for a lie and worshipped and served things created rather than the creator who is forever praised. You know, it's like if, if you keep ignoring the truth, eventually you're going to fall into the spiral of just believing the lies in order to justify your own actions. If we keep ourselves from the truth, eventually we start listening to lies and view that as the truth. And it's dangerous when we, wait, when we turn away from the truth, especially in regards to sin. Saying things like, well, my sin isn't that bad. I don't need to confess. I don't need help. Or maybe you believe the lie of, I'm too far gone, I can't change. When we start telling ourselves that we're okay and our sin isn't that bad, then eventually we'll believe it. If we believe that we'll never change, then you won't ever change. But handling hard truths is necessary for spiritual growth. But what does this mean for us? You know, maybe there's an area in your life that needs challenging. Start working on it today. If you've been challenged by a brother or sister about a particular area in your life, make the decision to start working on it today. Obviously, we're not supposed to just follow everything people say. But if it comes from the Bible, then that's the ultimate authority, isn't it? Just like Felix, it doesn't matter if you're the governor of Judea. Um, the Bible is the ultimate authority in our lives. Maybe God's revealed some truth to you, either through a situation or reading your Bible. You know, grab somebody off the church and be real about what's going on in your life. And have them help you face these hard truths, rather than turning away and dealing with it when you think it's convenient. You know, if you're a teen, I encourage you to... Seek out what it means for you to have a relationship with God. 
You know, I grew up coming to church as a child, and I know what it's like to see other people's convictions about God or be told about other people's convictions about God, but not really have my own conviction about who God is. But if you don't let the Bible change your life, you can end up going to church your whole life without having any idea on what you believe in. I encourage you to find the truth for yourself. And if you're visiting here today, I encourage you to seek out the truth that is Jesus Christ. Whether it's your first time to coming, coming to church and learning about God, or you've grown up in church your whole life, I encourage you to let the Bible shape your idea and the truth of who God really is. You know, ask the person who invited you or the person next to you, what does it mean to really follow Jesus? In Matthew 7, verse 7 to 8, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. If you really want to know the truth on who God is, all you need to do is seek. So to conclude the sermon today, I just want to reiterate what Chris said. You know, we must stand firm and stand out. Oh, you got to stand up. You know, even the small things can cause such a big impact. Um, I think Chris, you know, the, the point about the space shuttle, such a tiny error caused such a dramatic change in the outcome of that mission. You know, what does the resurrection of Christ mean in your life? Is it an important role or is it a side point? Secondly, we must handle the hard truths. Whether it's confronting the sin in your life or facing the truths said in the Bible, facing the hard truths is essential for spiritual growth. Let's be a people who stand firm, people who stand out, and a people who handle the hard truths. Amen. Amen.